associate, I'd be going to the practice and say, is there anything I can take off your plate? Is there anything that I can do to make life easier for you? Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir, and this episode, we talk with someone who genuinely inspired this podcast. Someone who I've been listening to for years and someone who's been podcasting for four years with over 200 episodes. It is, of course, Dr. Jesse Green, a business coach and dentist based out of Australia who is a true leader in this field. Dr. Jesse Green is known for his business acumen and his coaching of dentists and bringing the practices to the level and the life that they want. And he also produces content and thought leadership around retention of patients and communication um, and a lot more than just business. His podcast, The Savvy Dentist Podcast, is such a great podcast because it's the intersection between business and dentistry and bringing ideas from outside of dentistry in. And that's where the real innovation occurs. I really enjoyed this podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure interviewing someone you actually know pretty well and someone you've heard their story before. I could really get into the depths of this and really tease out some extra information. Of course, we talk about his story, his journey, how he became, who he is and where he is. We learned some tips about being an associate and supporting your practice and being indispensable. We talk about retention of patients. It's something he's known for. And of course, what young dentists can do from his perspective, some tips, some real practical advice. I think this is packed with stuff that's useful and I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did just having this chat with Dr. Jesse Green. And I want to say thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. We've just passed 80,000 listens and we'll easily get to 100,000 early next year. It's just been an amazing journey providing this content for you guys and just being selfish and being able to ask these amazing people some questions and learning their story. It's been so great to hear your feedback and to hear the benefits that it's been giving people and I hope hearing my voice week in, week out has not been too much of a drag. 2021, we've got some awesome announcements. We're going to be doing a bit more giving back. We're going to be partnering with some great industry leaders in their field. Um, I'm really excited for 2021. We've got a lot to announce and you'll hear some more. Keep your ears peeled. Early January, we're going to release a podcast announcing some of those details. But for now, I really hope you have a fantastic holiday period and I hope your year, although it's been crazy, has worked out. Congratulations to everyone who's about to graduate or who has just graduated. And I look forward to making Dental Head Start bigger and better in 2021. For now, enjoy the chat with Dr. Jesse Green. Aesthetics is not just prepping teeth. If we want to be minimally invasive, we need to use aligners or some sort of orthodontics to put the teeth in the right place before we change their form. And of course, the pioneer of this is Invisalign. They've got the most experience, the most cases have gone through their platform and the most in-depth tools to use to get your patients from where they are to where they want to be. Once you're ready to provide aligners, Invisalign Go is the perfect entry point. It's the first step in becoming an Invisalign provider, allowing you to do relatively simple cases effectively and efficiently with their online tools. Go to invisalign-doctor.com.au to start your aligner journey today. This one is really long overdue. I want to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Jesse Green. Sorry. <laughs> Tell me when you want me to respond. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. Um, this episode is long overdue. Dr. Jesse Green, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's an absolute thrill to be here. Good to be here for you. And oh, far Let me, let's do that again. <laughs> just, just go again, I guess. Yeah. 
This one is long overdue. Dr. Jesse Green, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. David, thanks so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, mate. It's going to be fun. So it's long overdue because I have literally been listening to you speak for about four years on your podcast, the Savvy Dentist podcast. And I want to just start with saying thank you for all that content. It's fantastic. If people listening haven't heard of it, it is worth checking out. Um, I want to ask you to start because we're going to get into your story. We're going to learn about what you're doing, what you've done in the past, how you got here. But from the podcast, over the four years you've been doing it, over 250 episodes, what are the key nuggets of gold that you've got from that wow um well there's there's tons uh, i often feel like as the interviewer much like yourself and and before we get into my thing let me just say it's a thrill to be here because i, I think the work that you're doing for your audience is incredible you know helping people get the best start in their career is really invaluable i wish this podcast existed when i was a new and recent graduate so um i, I really appreciate that but I guess the thing being the interviewer on a podcast, uh, as I'm sure you've experienced yourself, is sometimes I always feel like I'm in the luckiest seat in the house. You know, I yep. feel like I'm the beneficiary uh, of the interview in the sense I get to have a conversation, learn a lot of things. So I guess the things that I've learned having interviewed so many people over a number of years now is that everyone's got something to share. Everyone's got some wisdom. Everyone's got an insight. Everyone's got something to offer. Um and the other thing I would say that's really interesting around that is that I've learned that success, you know, in inverted commas, air quotes, uh, ladies and gents, uh, <laughs> uh, is very personal and there's not a one-size-fits-all definition of success. And so mm-hmm. I've interviewed, you know, lots of different people from all walks of life and the premise of our show is not invented here. So we look at what's happening in the general business world and apply it to dentistry, but it's really interesting when you talk from people outside of dentistry, you get a much broader view of what what's going on in their world and i've learned that things are really different for different people and, and that's great because you know it's just a rich tapestry and finally i guess the third thing i've learned in all of this is to just try to be a better listener and to ask mm. better quality mm. questions and the quality of the question you know usually dictates the quality of the answer so i think i, I like to think my own communication skills have been enhanced as a result of doing it um, but you know, time time will tell. I guess my <laughs> wife my wife might disagree with that. So anyway, so we'll we'll see. That's great. I think my wife would agree with your wife on me, but I feel the same way. It's the best seat in the house. We've got this opportunity to talk with some wonderful people. And I really love what you do, which is to bring people from outside of dentistry and then tie the knot in with dentistry, particularly in the business space. Um, For some people, that would be more interesting than for others, but um, it's really filled a huge void. Um, We're going to get into a lot about the podcast and things you're doing now, but I'd love to get a bit about you and and how you got here. was it always dentistry or was there something else you were planning to do? Do you know, it's really funny. Um, I remember first thinking about dentistry, I think I was about the age of six or seven or thereabouts, and um, it was dentistry was always there. There were other things that came and went, but dentistry mm. was the constant. So I'm very grateful to the dental profession. It's literally given me everything in my life. My wife's a dentist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we often joke that it's a social service, dentists marrying each other. It keeps us out of the general, <laughs> general population a bit. Um, but, you know, so I'm very, very grateful to the profession. But there were other things that I looked at. Um, certainly, like other health practitioners, I, I looked at optometry and, and other things. I looked at law. 
I studied Indonesian through high school. So I was really, I almost went and did a, a combined degree of law and modern Asian studies with Indonesian. And, um, you know, for one reason or another, I zigged it instead of zagged. Yeah, okay. Where would that have taken you, just out of curiosity, into a business space? or? Yeah, I think probably commercial law is where I would have ended yeah, up in, yeah. and potentially overseas. And mm. so, you know, that that's something that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, would I have enjoyed that? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure. It was a bit of an intersection now with what you're doing, which is business within dentistry. So, um, pretty, it worked out pretty well, I think. Tell us about um, getting into dentistry. How did you go in dentistry and what was the path after that? Okay. So, I did not get into dentistry first time around. Um, cool. In Queensland at the time, we had a TE score system and I was a few marks off getting the required score. And so, most people, when that happens, they, they either go to uni, choose a different course, choose a different path. Um, or they go into a year of science or whatever and try and then upgrade into dentistry. Uh, I didn't do that. I went back and did year 12 again. And so um, I, I was one of those kids that was a bit older in my final year of high school because I had repeated year 12 and obviously I got the marks to get in. Um, dentistry, it's really funny. I, in some ways, as much as I had this idea of dentistry going through childhood, adolescence and so on, it was probably, you know, the, this is going to sound so obvious and, and all the people listening to this are going to go, my God, Jesse, I can't believe, uh, <laughs> you know. But I was never particularly dexterous as a kid. You know, I wasn't mm. one of those kids that made model aeroplanes and all that sort of stuff. And I, and I remember thinking, I wonder if this is going to be an issue or not. And um, and so when I got to university, um, I, you know, certainly I could cope okay. I mean, I was, you know, academically fine, um, you know, did the theory stuff pretty well enough. Clinically, I was okay, not brilliant, but as I you know, graduated from university, I, I was very, very conscientious. And so it was just through sheer determination and hard work that I mastered those clinical skills. Um, but, you know, some people, I don't know if you had a David, there was always that one or two people in the year that kind of had magic running through their fingers and everything they touched looked amazing and I was not one of them. <laughs> one of my very good friends was um, oral health therapist before she started the dental course and we we cut our first little thing in a little block it was literally just a straight line and hers was straight and everyone else literally zigged and zagged um so since day one we we're trying to catch up it's it's funny you say that because when i was younger i did a few things with my hands and like painting these little model things and it was terrible so <laughs> i don't know how i've got through now it's uh, it seems to have worked out repeating year 12 to get the marks did that? That's an interesting choice and uh, perhaps a hard one. Did that teach you anything? Did that um, give you a different perspective on study or hard work or anything at all then? Yeah, it did. Uh, in some ways it was harder in some ways it was easier. Easier from the point of view that I'd already done the work the year before and did quite well. It wasn't yeah. like I'd you know, flunked out and had to catch up. And so I felt that I had an unfair advantage. I put myself into a space where I knew I could really win. Yeah. And so if I went to do a year of science, for instance, I was then in with all the other science students and it was a level playing field again. So I wanted to stack the odds in my favour and that's why I did that. Mm. Um, so I did a bit of an analysis and thought what's going to be the pathway that's going to get me there fastest. And back when I did dentistry, it was an undergrad degree. You went straight from school into dentistry. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it, you know, today it might not be available. Um, but what I learned around that, apart from stacking the odds in my favour, was to be incredibly focused 
So, you know, I was fortunate enough to receive a private education and my parents, through their good grace, allowed me that opportunity Mm. to go back and do it again. So I was really conscious of the sacrifice that they made. I was really conscious of the the gift that they were giving me and had already given me in the years prior to that. And so, um, you know, I eliminated everything that was extraneous. Um, so in my previous years of school, I'd been active in sports, I'd you know, been involved in other activities. But in that year 12 repeat year, I eliminated everything that was extraneous to the goal of dentistry. Mm. So that included girlfriends, <laughs> go on. Social, everything. Like, yeah. What, what I'm hearing there is pressure, a pressure to hit a goal. Did that bear on you at that point or did that? Or were you just focused and going to get that goal? Uh, pressure is an interesting word. I certainly put a lot of pressure on myself. I felt that, yeah, mum and dad had made a, a real sacrifice for me to go and do that. You know, mm. probably like every parent, they want their kids to have the best opportunities um, and they they backed me in on that. So, yeah, I probably felt a bit of pressure. Um but the pressure from them was never spoken or never – there was no overt pressure or expectation from them, but I, I probably internalized it, yes. Mm-hmm. It's um, Yeah, it's a fascinating way to do it and obviously it worked out really, really well. And it's something that I guess we, we all do in, in the way we – if we have got to where we are as dentists or students in dentistry, we have put in that focus and time and pressure and it's something we all, I guess, have to deal with. Coming out of um, dentistry, so you, you graduated and you went into um, the Navy. Tell us about that experience and why did you choose to do the, go into the Navy? So probably have to go back a little way before dentistry. When I was um, young, um, when I was about 10, my parents moved to Papua New Guinea and uh, while they were living in Port Moresby, my mother worked at the Australian High Commission there and uh, she was exposed to all sorts of military attaches, diplomats, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, she, she'd kind of taken the view that, you know, Jesse, there's this career path available to you if you want it. You know, I know you want to do dentistry, but there's these scholarships available to you. And then for those that are old enough to remember, probably uh, the audience of this podcast may not remember, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're experiencing a recession now. And the last recession we had was 30 years ago, and I happened to be a dental student at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or thereabouts. And so in 1992, I applied for an undergraduate scholarship. And it was me kind of trying to read the tea leaves about, Mm. okay, what's going to be happening in one or two years time when I'm going to be looking for work when I graduate? Is it an opportunity for me to go and secure my employment now, get some money while I'm a uni student, hopefully enter into a really productive and enjoyable work uh, workforce and, and get some good mentoring along the way and that turned out to be the case it was a good decision for me to go and do that so for third year fourth year fifth year I was sponsored in the navy and mm-hmm. then obviously I had a return of service obligation um, that was the number of years of sponsorship plus one so in my case four years yep. Yep. and then um, I, I did that time and some more because I was enjoying it so much and some more okay so and I'll ask two questions. Um, one is going to get us a little sidetracked, but we are going into a bit of a recession now. There's no two ways about it. Um, there's a lot of graduate or students, sorry, listening, and they're probably thinking about those options. Do you think your situation then is akin to now? And would you recommend people consider these options? 
Yeah, I, look, again, I think there's going to be some similarities, definitely, and every recession has its similarities, but it also has its differences. You know, mm-hmm. even like the global financial crisis, not quite a recession, uh, you know, not technically a recession, but a financial shock as well. And there's lots of similarities and lots of um, differences, but the similarities are there's a downturn and there's also opportunity on the other side of that. So, yeah. you know, I believe that from every adversity comes a seed of an equal or greater opportunity. And so there's always opportunity. And so I guess I'd say to the audience members listening is keep your eyes open for those opportunities that will invariably come and try not to get caught up with the negativity. But specifically to your point, um, yeah, I, I think for young dentists, the military is a great place to learn some skills. It's a great place to do things you would never have the opportunity to do otherwise. And there's good mentoring, there's a good peer group. And so I think it for me it was fantastic and I think it's a great place to start your career for those people who might be in that position. Yeah, well, well answered. What's it like doing dentistry on a boat that's rocking? Hard is the short answer. <laughs> um, uh, um, so I went to sea in my second year out of university, which was premature. And it was through circumstance and a lack of anyone else really. And my friend and I who had joined at the same time, we were both eager beavers and uh, we had volunteered to go to sea very early. Um, I went to sea on uh, the old HMAS Brisbane as my first ship, which was um, a guided missile destroyer. And so it rolled around. And so if you think about the arc of movement at the top of the ship, you know, the arc is greater. You know where I'm going, right? <laughs> so my first uh, ship, HMAS Brisbane, rolled like a dog and the dental chair was a Jason recliner, a black uh, vinyl Jason recliner like you see on the Friends TV show with Joey and Chandler. And, <laughs> um, and then we had this mobile dental unit that um, it had bottles of water that you'd screw into it. And um, because we were you know, young and immature, we would uh, fill those bottles with things other than water and do laybacks with them, but that's probably <laughs> a different story. I'm not sure how good that was for the lines, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. And is it far enough since that that no one listening is ever going to Yeah, I think I'm, I'm well enough out of the Navy that I'm not going to get in trouble. But I think, you know, the first time I went to sea, um, you know, we didn't have x-rays in those days. Uh, we didn't have a lot of gear. And so it meant that, you know, your clinical judgment, especially as a very recent graduate like I was, needed Mm. to be sharp. And I certainly made some mistakes in judgment there. Um, But I remember giving a block just as they did a man overboard exercise. And so the man overboard (laughs) exercise is basically throw a life boy over the side and then someone has to spot it and the ship does a giant Yui. Yeah, big fast turn. Big fast turn, right? (laughs) And you can imagine trying to have that happen with a block, you know, midway through a block and the ship's rolling. So the poor fellow who was the patient, I think I hit the Ramus so hard, the poor man. And um, I don't know who was more frightened, me or me, me or him, but it was it was a bit it was a bit ordinary. <laughs> I was going to say I feel for him more than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, mate, I absolutely should feel for him. He, he, but he was such a trooper. He was he was good. You know, he said don't worry about it, doc. It's fine. So yeah, that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. What else did you learn from your time in the navy? Any any pearls of wisdom that you'd like to pass oh, on? Man, how long is your podcast? Um, <laughs> oh, I do long podcasts. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, well, buckle up, folks. Um, uh, get you, get yourself a cup of tea because we're yeah. going to be here for a while. Um, no, look, I learned a lot of things. I I learned the value of mentoring and I had some tremendously good early mentors in my career. There's a particular guy, Rob Taylor, um, who was just a really, really good guy. He understood 
young dentist. He was a great mentor. He was a great um, guy, you know, socially. And so it was a really good balance of a professional and social relationship. And he and his wife um, took my mate and I under their wing. And so that was fantastic. Um, I learned the value of uh, teamwork. And one of the things on a ship is every single person has a role. And so I remember when I was not doing dentistry, I'd go and volunteer to serve food in the kitchen or whatever. And, and maybe that's not the typical thing that an officer on a ship would do, but I was curious enough to understand what every person's role on the ship was because you need that you know, role to be completed for the ship to function. Yep. And you kind of realize that in a dental team, you, you know, you need someone who can do the sterilization, you need someone who can you know, be chair side, you need someone who can answer phone calls. It's not all just about the dentist. For the practice to mm-hmm. function, everyone's got a role to play. And so I learned that. I learned a lot about leadership and, you know, as my time progressed in the Navy, you know, I was in charge of initially just myself and then small teams and larger teams and ultimately, you know, medical centres and, um, you know, systems and processes and all the sorts of things you'd expect with Navy. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's such a foundational um, understanding on so many different things. I think like you've raised a few points like just team teamwork, just the simple thing of the fact that we all have a role but we can also help, you know, go and serve the food. Um, we can go and assist someone who's struggling with something if we're not seeing a patient. We can, we can help the practice be a better practice. Little things like that make a huge, huge difference. Absolutely. And if, if the people listening to this podcast, I, most of them are either – I'm assuming students or early in their career and probably not practice owners yet. Um, But I would say it's really important to make yourself invaluable to the organization. And my mate David and I, we, we set about trying to be indispensable. And that meant we were gunning for promotion and all the rest of it. And and obviously that's a different matter because it's military, but for the younger listeners, we went over and above. We did things that we were never paid to do, things that would never be expected of us to do, and we sought to va- add value first before we got recognition or promotion later, if that mm. makes sense. So we wanted to make ourselves ind- indispensable. What made you realize that that's so important? Like, did you intuitively know that? I think, I think it was probably intuitively just figuring it out i don't think you know i had the direct realization for you know good 18 months into it but we were just so enthusiastic at the beginning that most people were not as enthusiastic and so therefore we probably stood out just for that energy and enthusiasm but then after a while the penny dropped and we went "Mm, you know let's let's make ourselves really indispensable yeah, hindsight, sometimes it makes you realize what you do know. <laughs> we, we, we did a webinar early in the year and you actually talked about becoming indispensable. Um, I think that, that content is really important for people to realize, you know, getting a job, you want to be, um, you want your boss to want to employ you. <laughs> um, and obviously with you being a mentor to so many business owners in the dental field, um, can you expand maybe a little bit on a couple of points, becoming indispensable? What to Business owners, particularly now in 2020, considering everything, what do they need us to be as an associate? Look, it's a really good question. And, you know, again, we could create a whole laundry list here and talk for hours. But just a couple of key thoughts is just I think if if the dentist listening to this show can appreciate that the practice owner is more than likely carrying a clinical load and more than likely carrying an administrative load and anything that you can do to alleviate that load is going to be really welcome 
Mm. Um, my experience is that most practice owners are really happy to invest in associates if the associates are happy to invest of their time and effort into the practice. And so it, those things don't go unnoticed by the business owner. Maybe not commented on immediately, but they certainly don't go unnoticed. So I guess what I'd be saying if I was an associate, I'd be going to the practice owner and say, is there anything I can take off your plate? Mm. You know, is there anything that I can do to make life easier for you? Would you like me to write that process about how to process the lab work? Would you like me to um, do some training of the DAs? Would you like me to look at the infection control protocols or would you like me to look at what instruments we use for endo or whatever it is that's going on that might be a project that's kind of sitting in the back of the practice owner's mind and take that project on and then say here's here's the project i've done what how do you feel about that and then be you know be willing to do those sorts of things i think if if you're going to be indispensable it's about knowing who ultimately is the decision maker and trying to make their life easier and solve the problem, whatever problem that person might be experiencing. Mm, yeah, that's it's yeah, exactly. It's time. And even just with things like running this podcast, and I've got some awesome people helping me. And when they they do something for me that's like above and beyond, and it's just like, oh, this is it's amazing. It's such a relief. And so I can only imagine that is leveraged, you know, 100x in a in a large general practice. So that's no, fantastic. Why did you end up leaving the Navy? What, where, where did that lead you? Well, I think there's a couple of factors that all came to a head at the same time. Um, I left the Navy having been in there uh, for close to 10 years, three of which included my undergraduate year, so three plus the seven. And so that was around long service leave time. Um, and I think by that stage, I'd, I'd received the promotion I was seeking. I didn't really see much of a career path for me. And I realized that my clinical skills would probably atrophy if I didn't make the move to private practice at some point um, because we're dealing with such a young and fit population. And, of course, in the military, the focus is on dental fitness rather than you know, comprehensive dentistry, and there's, mm. there's a difference. And so I, I began to feel like I needed to get out so that my clinical skills you know, could continue to grow and expand. And then, um, can you just expand slightly on what uh, the limitations were? In you know, are you obviously doing what less crown and bridge. What, yeah, yeah, certainly. So, dental fitness is is this person fit to deploy? Yeah, yeah. have we removed active disease? You know, caries, perio, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, periapical issues. And so, I think um, you know, you can look inside a mouth. There might be a heavily worn dentition, mm-hmm. but and it needs treatment, but they're not going to become a dental casualty in the next deployment, so we're not treating it. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a sort of difference. And I began to see all these sorts of things that really did require treatment. Um, and on top of that, it was incredibly bureaucratic to get that treatment approved down the track. So, you know, there'd be 27 forms to fill in in triplicate and, you know, so on and so forth. So it just became a bit, I don't know, sand in the gears. yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. So when you did start to see or have those thoughts of expanding, where, where did you end up? What did I end up? Oh, well, I, so concurrently I met a girl and so um, <laughs> <laughs> who's now my wife. And um, so Miranda had a practice in Canberra and I'd spent my entire Navy career basically saying, if you post me to Canberra, I'm out. 
<laughs> and, and then irony of ironies, of course, is um, uh, I came to camp with my own free will, and my bosses in the navy did did point out the irony to me on more than one occasion around that. Um, but so I came to Canberra and I had my first job as an associate in Canberra, and, and that was probably a, a tricky transition because um, I was used to a certain hierarchy in the military. I was used to you know, having more stripes on my shoulder than other people and knowing exactly where you fit in. Uh, but then when I came out, I, I felt a little bit lost in the sense of, you know, where do I fit in? I kind of seem to have DAs telling me what to do, <laughs> um, everyone telling me what to do yeah, uh, yeah, and not yeah. quite knowing, you know, what was what and da-da-da-da-da. And I think, you know, I'd also had to learn to practice a bit more quickly. Um, I had to be able to, you know, um, look at things more comprehensively and so it was just it was a a gradual learning but you know i went through and did a lot of ce and and upgraded my skills and and got there and so and again in canberra we had some great specialists and still have some great specialists in town who are very happy to you know let you go into their practice look over their shoulder see how they do Mm -hmm. things and i think that'd be a tip for young dentists as well go and see your specialists and spend a day with them and watch them observe them sit in with them Mm. You make that relationship so you can ask them when something's gone awry. <laughs> Absolutely, because it happens to us all, right? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, coming out of the Navy, you're talking about that that hierarchy or the difference when you're in private practice. There's also, in a, in a way, a bit of an opposite where you come out of dentistry and you're kind of put into a leadership position in a way, um, but you don't really have those skills. Do you have any advice um, considering your situation or considering, you know, a graduate who's come in, they're kind of in a leadership position but maybe they've got staff that are pushing around a bit. Do you have any thoughts around that environment? Yeah, firstly, it's tough. Um, yeah. So I don't want to pretend it's all peaches and cream. Mm. Um, it is a bit tricky and it's a little bit tough. And oftentimes, you know, when you graduate from uni, your dental assistant who you're sitting, you know, three feet away from all day is a similar age. And so there's going to be an affinity there. So I would say there's a difference between being friendly and friends. Yeah. And just remaining a little bit professionally distant uh, so that if you need something from that dental assistant, you haven't blurred it by being out on the turps, you know, on Saturday (laughs) night, you know, uh, with that same person because it becomes hard to manage after that. So I think the first thing I'd say is recognise that you're in that position of leadership. You might not even feel it, but you are. To be confident enough to state what you need from your team member who's sitting across the way from you in a nice way, not not in a, you know, um, hierarchical, um, autocratic kind of way but in a way that allows you to say, look, um, so that we can achieve X, Y, Z, I'm just going to need this, this, and this. Um, And that way, you know, you're going to be able to get the best from your DA. Um, So I'd say firstly recognise the role that you've, you know, set foot in. uh, And and then, of course, you know, um, maintain that little bit of professional separation. Yeah. I I think that's a really good point. And I've seen... um, I've worked in a number of different practices as an assistant um, and then, you know, seen it from different angles and it always makes business more challenging when there's a friendship thing or some other social relationship underlying because then it all changes. So I think that's a really good point that people don't think about enough. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you straight up, 
David, is I got that wrong for many years. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a lot of, you know, mistakes to learn that lesson. And because I naturally like to be friendly, I naturally sure. like to be with people. I naturally, you know, let's go and have a drink on a Friday after work or whatever it is. Like that's all fun until it doesn't work. Yeah. And then yeah. then I go, oh, Jesse, you've done it again. Duck, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, slow learner in my 20s. Can you, um, and it's all right if not, but think of a situation that that did lead you to, maybe without any names, a descriptive situation. Yeah, so we'll protect the innocent here. Yeah, look, there was certainly, um, there was certainly some times when um, I can think of one trip in particular um, it was actually on that sea trip on the HMAS Brisbane at the time. And at sea, officers don't get to drink. You know, that's that's the rule. Officers don't drink at sea. Um, the the sailors get a beer issue, you know, two, two cans um, per man per night perhaps was the routine, right? So, <laughs> um, so every now and then they'd get a beer issue. And my dental assistant um, would come up to the dental surgery which was you know the cabin with a jason recliner and he'd come with his two cans of beer and he'd throw me one and say here you go boss you know you've you've earned one and i was not meant to be partaking mm. in it and i did mm. and yeah we'd have a laugh and we'd talk about things and blah 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 blah. and then when he was ashore he did some things that he ought not to have done and i had to reprimand him and it mm. was just Mm. it yeah. was just hard and it's completely different now. completely yeah. different so i'm like dude you, you know you shouldn't do that <laughs> i know we had a beer together i shouldn't have done that but you really just can't do this yeah 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 it, and changes that res- respect level sometimes um but yeah we could talk about all those situations i think for a long time as well what fascinates you about business and practice ownership Oh, that's a really good question. Um, what fascinates me is thinking about what's not been done before. And the whole premise of our podcast mm. is what's happening out there that we could learn from and apply in dentistry. That's that's what I enjoy a great deal. And I've always enjoyed that. So any idea I've had has always been by looking at what someone else is doing and thinking, that's really interesting. I wonder if we could do this in dentistry. And, yeah, even when I started building websites, it was a case of, oh, this is really fascinating. I wonder how we could apply this to dentistry. Mm. And, you know, back in 2008, that's when I started the digital marketing agency because I was thinking, well, there's no one really doing this. You know, there Mm. were some web developers, but how do we make this relevant for us? So I think that's always been it, David, is, you know, looking for inspiration in the general business world or the entrepreneurial spaces and thinking "That's, that's a great idea. I love that because it actually ties it back into creativity and and that's one of the things about business that you don't really think when you first think of business, especially if you're someone who's not that interested in it. Entrepreneurship and, and business ownership is actually a form of crea- creativity and the way you describe it there is um, really the epitome of that. Did you go into business ownership soon after leaving the Navy? Y- yes and no. So, um, my, my first business was while I was in high school and and then... Um, about that. Well, when I was at high school, I was a boarding school. So uh, I think I told you my mum and dad moved to New Guinea. And in that final year of high school, the second one, 
um, I wanted to go to schoolies week and your know, mum and dad, I'd already imposed upon them enough, I think, for the second year of <laughs> year 12 that uh, they were a little reluctant to fund a trip, a boozy trip to the Gold Coast and because um, I was 18 by that stage. And um, so I thought, okay, well, yeah, necessity is the mother of invention here. So what I did was I sold, you know, the football jerseys that, you know, you see so commonly these days. They weren't so common in the late 80s. And so I designed the jerseys, um, had them manufactured and then sold them. In fact, I sold them first. That was the big lesson, sell it first and then design it and, you know, get the design. <laughs> and then check. figure out how to do it. <laughs> totally, right? Totally. So I pedal like crazy. And um, so that was my first business experience and I learned a lot about leverage. I learned a lot about selling at first. I learned a lot about, you know, all of those sorts of things. And that business ultimately um, funded my trip to schoolies week, got a jersey out of it, um, blew all the money on, you know, hmm. things I ought not to have. But, of course, yeah. you know, that's what you do when you're 18. <laughs> and um, But it's the lessons learned. <laughs> it's absolutely the lessons learned. And that business also got closed down because I was employing other school kids and apparently <laughs> apparently that wasn't so cool. <laughs> but it worked out just long enough. It worked that's out long it. enough to get the money to go to schoolies. And so, anyway, it, it was good. Um, and so that was my first business foray. And then when I was a dentist in the Navy, there was a book that came out in 1997, 1998 called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm. Many, many people have read that book since. But in 1997 or 1998, that was a book that was way ahead of its time, right? That was, there was nothing much like it at the time. And of course, there's a dearth of books like that now. But at the time, it was, you know, really quite radical. And it is one of the handful of books that changed my world and changed my life. And somewhere in that book, um, Robert Kiyosaki, might even been the second book, said, you've got to learn to sell. If you're in business, the core skill is learning how to sell. And you know, I took that advice to heart and somewhere else he'd recommended joining a network marketing company. So I joined network marketing to build a, a sales-based business to learn ostensibly the skills of selling. So mm. I would finish work as a dentist and I'd be in my Navy uniform, I'd quickly get changed, I'd go door knocking selling pots and pans around Mossman in Sydney. <laughs> I had more doors slammed in my face, I had more things <laughs> you know, like, you know, thrown out of places than you can imagine. Uh, we also did cold calling over the telephone. So I learned about those sorts of things. And and so that those two businesses though, you know, the the jersey business and that network marketing business, while I you wouldn't kind of hold them up in lights and say, you know, what an outstanding commercial success. It did lay the groundwork for understanding leverage. It did understand, uh, lay the groundwork for helping me understand the value of selling something first, developing my sales skills. The communication skills that I now possess mm -hmm. absolutely came from network marketing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's how it went. That's so good because it really, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fast track in um, learning how to deal with rejection. But at the same time, those lessons are just foundational. And I have heard you say that before and, and your, those skills, like they, you extrude those skills. L let's just touch on the topic that selling in dentistry is it's a bad word, right? You know, people are like, oh, I don't want to be selling. I just want to be doing good dentistry. Can you expand on your thoughts around that? I have fixed thoughts, but yeah, yeah, look, I have some thoughts around that as well. And look, here's my view on selling. And I know just in in just before I give you my thoughts on that, we use the word case acceptance because yeah. it's more socially palatable, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, like, yeah. It feels a bit nice, a bit more socially acceptable. But to me, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck, 
right? <laughs> um, so I'm going to use the word selling. You can use the word case acceptance if you want to, if you're listening along here, you know, just insert the word, whatever makes sense <laughs> for you. Um, but for me, selling is solving problems. Purely and simply, it's solving a problem. Uh, selling is about identifying problems and having people become emotionally engaged with that problem and interested enough in the solution that you provide such that they want to pair the two together. That's it. If there is no problem, there is no sale. Yeah. And so selling in dentistry, you know, most people come to the dental practice completely unaware of the state of their teeth, completely unaware of the fact that they've got an issue because for them, if it's not hurting, you know, there's no problem. But we know as professionals when we look inside the mouth that there's a heap of things going on that might not be producing symptoms but we know that left untreated could absolutely be detrimental to their dental health. And so we've got to uh, educate our patients around the state of their mouth. We've got to educate them about what this issue is and what that problem is likely to be left untreated. And so for me, selling in dentistry is about education. It's about bringing to light, you know, what's actually happening in someone's mouth. It's about engaging them with that process, you know, what that means for them at a real level. If you lose this tooth, it means you, you can't chew steak. Or if you lose this filling, it might be sensitive or, you know, what, whatever it happens to be. If we don't treat this caries, you can end up with a toothache or whatever it is. Because... I don't know about you, David, but I've never had anyone come to me in the history of my working life saying, hey, Jess, so stoked to be here for my 27DO. You know, I can't wait. Bring it on, buddy. Get that infiltration in and let's let's rock on. No one, no one says that, right? People have procedures to solve a problem, right? Yep. And so we've got to be able to link the procedure that's required to the problem or the benefit that they're looking to either, you know, solve or achieve. Mm. And in the end, it's our responsibility to get that across. It's not just, it, it is our responsibility. If we don't, we kind of fail the patient in a way. So communication is crucial. Yeah, and the thing is as well, people want your opinion. They want your mm. guidance and leadership. I, I hear a lot of people say is, I just give people the options and let them choose. Then if that's the case, I think you're not really giving the patient the best of you. Because you know as a dentist what the best treatment is. You know what's going to work best. You know what's going to not be a good option. And I feel that if we just let them make a decision without any input, we run the risk of the patient making a poor choice. Mm. And while ultimately their choice is their choice, I do feel we have a responsibility to give a view about what a good choice or a poor choice might be and then they can Exactly. And then no judgment they can choose as long as you've done your job with education. Yeah, I love it. I, I, yeah, obviously preaching to the choir and I have learned a lot from you. <laughs> um, actually, I've learned a lot from you um, within the book you wrote uh, a number of years ago now actually, but it's still as relevant as ever is retention. Why'd you write a book? <laughs> well, I wrote a book because when I was running the marketing agency, um, you know, invariably I'd get all these people ring me saying, Jesse, I just need more new patients. I just need more new patients. You know, my life will be peaches and creamy with new patients. You know, everything revolved around new patients. And I, I'd scratch my head and say, I don't know that you need new patients. I think you actually need to hang on to the ones you've got. And and what I would do is I'd go, okay, well, how many patients were on your you know, patient base, active patient base, you know, at, at point A, you know, let's say 12 months ago? How many active patients did you have today and it'll be 
you know, whatever it is. And then we look at how many new patients did you attract between those two points in time. And in theory, the number of patients you have now should be what you had back then, as well as the number of new patients in the intervening time. And 99 times out of 100, <laughs> it was not. And often those two numbers would be quite static. And so yeah, it was a case of, <laughs> the, yeah, total flatline. And you go, well, what's going on here? You know, you're, you're attracting patients, but you're clearly not retaining them. Mm. And it just got to the point where I was having this conversation enough times. I thought, this is, this is not an isolated issue. This is an issue where people are not understanding that their most valuable asset is the patient they already have. And they didn't understand retention maths either. And so that, you know, they, they didn't understand that when you retain a patient, the relationship with the patient grows and deepens. And when, you know, you're presenting treatment to them, coming back to that selling thing, people like to buy from those whom they know, like, and trust. And that takes time to build that know, like, and trust factor. So if you're not you know, keeping patients, you're constantly having these new patients that you're always dealing with new relationships. And so it's not just the loss of patients, it's the loss of treatment. Yeah, 100%. It's a shallower relationship. It's less treatment. This year has been a very strange year with COVID-19 and um, we were all restricted for a period of time. Um, a lot of us were lucky enough to go back. Melbourne had a really rough time. What I noticed was that because people weren't traveling and perhaps um, had more expendable cash, a lot of those patients I did plan things for two or three years ago, and that's the extent of my career, um, two or three years ago, came in and said, hey, let's just deal with this now. Or, or we, I did some of the more major things in that time because I'd set those seeds and they trusted me and now they had the personal circumstances to go ahead. Um, so I absolutely saw that myself. And, and the, you raise a really interesting point, David, and a point that I think that I'd probably like to highlight for younger dentists is you've stayed in the one place long enough mm. to build the relationship, right? Good point. And if you had hopped from one practice to another, that would be another reason why you'd be starting over with the relationships again and again. And so I do think that there's some merit that once you're in a place, it you know it doesn't have to be everything in a dream job up front, you know, earning five million bucks, <laughs> you know, having the Ferrari in the, in the front yard, uh, all that sort of stuff. I, I would say... Do the time in a, in the position long enough to see your work return, long enough to build those relationships, to see what treatment works and, and what mm. doesn't work. Some yeah. of my best work that I've been most proud of has been a failure. And that's yeah. a very humbling experience when you've done something that you thought was really good and then two years later it's, it's just not worked. And you go, well, okay, I've got to learn the lesson out of this. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point because it's easy for us to move regional or wherever and do a year or two and then sit back to the city. But that's you might get geographic success. You don't know what failed in that time. Um, and I park my Ferrari in the garage. So I don't know what you do oh, on the okay. front well, lawn, but yeah. well, I, mean, I like to be a bit more ostentatious. You know, I just want people to know that I've made it. <laughs> I'm, jo I'm, jo <laughs> yes. I'm joking. I'm joking. I still sound like no, a total no Ferraris. In yeah. <laughs> no Ferraris, front yard or garage at my house. <laughs> oh, I love it. With the regards to retention, what mistakes, particularly thinking about young associates, um, what mistakes, the key mistakes they might be making? Okay, so there's a couple. The first one is knowing what metrics matter. And so it's really important to know your rebooking rates. You know, if I have 10 patients today, how many of them leave with an appointment? Mm -hmm. And it's also important for younger dentists to understand 
that it's their responsibility to build their own book. You know, the, yeah. the practice will generate as many new patients as they can. The principal will hand over patients where they can. But your job as the younger dentist is to take that patient and build a relationship with them and keep them coming back to the practice. The 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 frustration that I understand younger dentists sometimes experience is they feel like the principal is not handing over their own patients to them. And I understand why that would seem frustrating, but the possible reason that's occurring is because the principal is not confident in the ability of the younger dentist to retain them. Now, that's not going to be true for everyone. Of course, there'll be lots of young dentists who do this remarkably well. But I'd say common mistake is, is not knowing your rebooking rate. A uh, common mistake is not creating a compelling reason for the patient to return. You know, um, David, when we see you in um, you know, April next year, um, there's three key things I'd like to focus on. Now, the first one of these is the crack on the lower molar. Now, the problem with cracks is they can expand. If that crack expands, then, you know, potentially there's, you know, a route for bacteria into the tooth or the tooth could break. Now, neither of those situations are good. So when we see you in April, I want to make sure that crack is stable. And if it's not stable, then we might need to look at some protection of it, you know, like, like a crown or something similar to that. But we'll check that in April. Mm. And so now I'm giving you what we call a compelling reason to return. And it's it's about the problem and expanding the implications of that problem and what could happen if they don't come back and get that seen to. So now I've also said come back in April, not in six months' time. Yeah. Because, yep. you know, I don't fixes know. Fixes it in their mind. Fixes yeah. it in their mind. So they don't come back in 18 months and go, oh, I was only here the other day. Um, and so that's that's something is, you know, rebooking rate, compelling reason to return at the two big ones. Mm. And I would say it's just about building relationships. It's it's a relationship business. And the thing I would say is being a great clinical dentist is is very important, okay, but it's assumed. Mm. patients don't know how good your margins are patients don't know any of that stuff unless it hurts so the they make assessments on how good a dentist you are based on how you make them feel that sums that up pretty perfectly i want to just mention something and i'm not sure i'm assuming you did do this on purpose but um you're talking about the crack and saying look we might need to do something perhaps even a crown so you're seeding the possible possibilities obviously you know it may not obviously but if you do find that that crack extends patients crack to syndrome whatever reason you decide it does need a crown the patient already knows that that's a possibility and that obviously opens those doors a little bit differently or in their mind would that be right absolutely um, and what I'll also do to cement that even further is I'll take a clinical photograph, print it off, and I'll draw where the crack is and I'll say, look, it's really important that you clean really, really vigilantly around this tooth. Clearly, I'll <laughs> clean vigilantly around all teeth. But um, I'll say, look, this is really important. This is strategically important tooth. You want to clean very well, particularly around this tooth. Here's the crack here that you can see. So I want to make sure that when we see you in you know, April that we're going to check that. Just put that up on your mirror in the bathroom so that you're just reminded of where to brush. <laughs> reminded of me every time you brush. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, that's really, really good Good tips. Um, where can people find that book? Uh, well, you can find that book on Amazon, um, uh, the Kindle version or the hard copy version, um, or you can find it on SavvyNetters.com. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it, it's a really good book. Um, 
I definitely recommend people check that out. I want to come coming towards the end of this um, episode. I actually really want to think about the future a little bit. And um, I, you are someone who's really good at planning and and all of these kinds of things. I've heard you do podcasts in the past like this, thinking about how to make next year great. And it's a lot of, of course, what you do with the business mentoring and coaching with the savvy uh, savvy dentist. Um, obviously, it's been a really tough year, but people are starting to get back on track. How do you think about planning for your year it's a you know it's a really good um, opportunity to set some plans and hit some goals what do you think about when it comes to the end of the year and future planning so it's a really good point mate and um certainly we would all agree that 2020 has been a bit of a topsy-turvy year you know pandemics (laughs) bushfires you know we've kind of had it all um the thing that i would say around that is while um, you know, no one would have predicted a pandemic clearly. No one foresaw coronavirus. But I would say risk analysis, risk mitigation should be part of any business planning and indeed any part of personal life planning. So identify the risks and come up with a mitigation strategy. But to your point specifically, I'll come back to risk in a moment, but really oh, goal setting I think is really important. And and I use a life wheel type of thing which is essentially a circle and you can divide it up into you know four parts eight parts however many parts you like and you would allocate a section of your life to each you know quadrant or um, sextant or whatever and so you might have my physical well-being my emotional well-being my business life my personal finances my relationships spiritual life you know whatever it is for you those elements of your life and then what I do is you know if you put from the middle of the circle uh, out to the um, periphery of the circle, a line, and on that line you have 10 graduations. And you might say, okay, well, where am I, you know, out of 10 for this section of my life? You know, it might talk about my physical health. You know, maybe I'm a 6 out of 10. Well, why am I a 6 out of 10? Well, I'm not getting enough sleep. I've put on a few COVID kilos. I'm not exercising <laughs> to the extent that I want it. You know, whatever it happens to be, right? And then you go, well, okay, well, over the next, you know, 12 months or so, where do I – want to be you know if i'm having this conversation with myself in you know 12 months from now what would need to be true for me to feel that that's been successful you know well okay i i would need to have lost three kilograms i'd need to be sleeping you know eight hours soundly night waking up refreshed in the morning you know whatever it happens to be and i do that for the different areas of my life so that then i've got something to focus on now the thing around that is not all areas of your life are of equal importance to you Right, so then I kind of triage those areas of life and go, okay, which ones here are most important to me? And, and I think we had um, a, a guy called Dr. John Martini on our podcast recently, and he's quite well known as a human behavior specialist. He does a lot of work around values, et cetera. And the thing that he would say is it's about being true to your own values and not feeling that what is the correct value, and again, sorry, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm using air quotes with my fingers <laughs> here, so keep forgetting it's an audio uh, program. But, you, you know, not what's socially acceptable. You know, maybe family is not the highest value in someone's life, so therefore it's going to be further down the line, and that's okay. And maybe physical well-being is number one priority for someone, and that's okay too. So I guess, you know, knowing what is actually most important to you you're valuing and respecting that and then setting your goals around those different areas of your life to you know go from wherever you are to what a 10 out of 10 would look like in 12 months time yeah i I absolutely love that i think what you've done there is taken the concept of 
goals, but you're actually thinking more about where you're at and where you want to be before you start setting goals. I think it's easy to be like, oh, it's it's New Year's Eve. What am I going to do? Um, I might stop drinking for a month. And you're not committed at all and you've got no real basis around the plan and, and so it never actually happens. And you and your podcast, the, the mantra, you know, practice in a life that you love. So it's the business and the life and it's a balance of the two because if you have one out uh, that's not working compared to the other one, Life's not actually that good. Um, fantastic way to a tool to use. Um, how do you then think about goals? Do you set like ten years, or do you like how do you think about that? Yeah, so I I look at where I want to be in ten years. Yeah, you know, in pretty broad brushstrokes. Then I break that down to three years. Then I break it down to one year. Then I break it down to ninety days. Yeah. So okay. that that's pretty much our process: is ten years, three years, one year, ninety days, and then I'm getting very granular in that ninety day period. And in that order, so reverse yes, engineering? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, any tips with just you know, thinking about young dentists, associates, not business owners with, um, with around that space, so perhaps um, things to focus on, the things you wish you focused on maybe, um, anything around that? Yeah, look, there's a few things, that, yeah, I guess um, thinking about the dental side of things for a moment um many of you would have heard of gordon christensen um over the years and he, he's been a wonderful mentor to many many dentists over a long period of time and i remember listening to him say he would choose one discipline to focus on that year and it might be endo or pros or you know whatever and he would go all in on endo for that year or all in on pros or whatever it is and so i i liked that concept of mm. trying to achieve a level of mastery in a discipline so that I wasn't just constantly skimming the surface of things. And so I liked that concept. So that would be something I'd think about, you know, from thinking, setting goals around my clinical development, you know, what would the next 12 months look like if I was to feel really happy about it? You know, what discipline would I have mastered to what degree? You know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, pros and it's, you know, learning how to do, I don't know, different types of crown preps or, you know, how to take a better bridge impression or maybe it's, you know, understanding how to build up the OVD or, you know, whatever it happens to be, or, you know, and then what courses or, or study might I do to support that. Those are the sorts of things, you know, clinically. But I think you know, coming back to the life thing as well, I think it's important to set some goals for your life and, um, you know, whether those goals be, you know, financial goals, whether those goals be, uh, fitness goals, relationship goals. Yeah, you know, I'm also a believer that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And so um, I think it's good to get out of dentistry a little bit as well. And, yeah, I say that I'm a dental nerd. My whole life is you know, <laughs> dentistry and dentistry has given me everything in my life. And as I said earlier, I'm really grateful for that. But I think it is important to just get out of dentistry from time to time. Yeah, 100%. Don't start a podcast in dentistry if that's what you're <laughs> yeah. aiming to do. Yeah, yeah, if you want to step away from dentistry, don't definitely don't start a podcast because <laughs> it's all-consuming, right? It's good fun though, good fun. Um, I, you touch on a few points I'm going to mention. Like the concept of progression, like setting goals in your personal life and then hitting goals, I think that that's something that like personally that gives me happiness and keeps me on track. So I think that's fantastic. And I'm going to do a really shameless plug. You talk about something that I agree entirely with, which is um, considering topics or disciplines of dentistry and then um, focusing deeply on those, getting a handle on those and moving forward. 
you know, CPD Junkery, obviously, we're um, co- partners in that with Omidazami and there's that alert email. You can tick the ones you're actually interested in and you get alerts every month on that discipline. Um, that's essentially why we made that and I really think that's um, I think that's useful and I don't care how you get your CPD or if you use that, but the concept is is great. Yeah, it's also filtering by location as well. So, you know, yeah. if you happen to be in Sydney and you're interested in ortho, then find yeah, out exactly. about the stuff on Sydney about ortho. But <laughs> don't miss out on the free stuff if you're <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Another shameless plug here. Um, but no, look, I think, you know, again, the, the whole concept of CPD has evolved a lot since I was a recent graduate. There, I believe there's much better CPD available now for dentists across you know, many different platforms, CPD Junkie being the one that we're familiar with, but others as well. And I think he, my honest opinion is that access to high-quality CPD has never been easier. Yeah, um, yeah, I think one of the gifts that come has come from COVID, and again, I say that um, in all seriousness, and I don't want to be glib about it because I understand there's been a lot of things that have been terrible about COVID, but one of the gifts that has come from COVID is I believe it's forced five years of innovation into about mm. six months of time. And I think as practitioners we're all getting used to the idea and comfortable with the idea of accessing more and more digitally rather than going to a hotel room and sitting through a seminar 100 percent. and i really like it because i'm five hours from sydney or two flights from melbourne so it saves me about i don't know twenty thousand dollars a year yep. in flights yep yep <laughs> so, and travel time and all the rest um, of it and just time away from family and from work the opportunity cost is less so I, I think it's certainly the way it'll be a hybrid model there'll be hands-on in on location there'll be lectures digitally or or something of that sort and um i'm all for it let's kind of zoom out a little bit last couple of questions um and think broadly about this but we're thinking about those students and graduates and i say students a lot there's lots of people listening to this there are obviously people some of your clients probably listening to this they're I hope you know, so. a bit more they're experienced <laughs> Um, but what mistakes do you see young dentists making? And perhaps let's phrase that as what do your business owners, that the clients, whinge about? <laughs> okay, well, I really have to protect the innocent here. <laughs> I, I, before I list these things, I'm going to tell you that every mistake that could have been made, I have made. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to be really clear that I've made every mistake known to man plus probably about 10 million more uh, <laughs> of my own very unique special mistakes. So, um, you know, if I say these things, I want to just be fully transparent in that. Um, so I think the things that probably frustrate practice owners and mistakes that people make is young associates coming to a practice and just not having the patience to stay there, expecting, you know, 150 new patients every month, you know, expecting full books without having to work for it, um, not understanding the value of retaining the patient base. I think that really drives pe- practice owners a bit nuts mm. because they're spending money on marketing. They don't want to be spending how many thousand dollars a month if it's going to be frittered away. This might be a... Strange question, but what do you think is going on for so many young dentists to have these expectations that are such a mismatch? Like, I, we obviously don't learn much about it at uni, but is there more to this? Well, look, I don't know, mate. To be honest with you, that's a tough question. I don't know that I've got the right answer for it. I do wonder, and again, I feel like, did you ever watch The Muppet Show? 
Do you remember the Muppet Show? Kind of, yeah. Oh, okay. Am I really just showing my age here now? Perhaps. Perhaps. All right. So for those younger members listening to this podcast, go onto YouTube and check no, out the Muppet say, Show. I was going to say, just YouTube. Just YouTube. And look for the two grumpy old guys that sit in the balcony. Hmm. Right? And I, yeah, I, I don't want to yeah. be those guys. Right? I don't want to be, you know, oh, the younger generation. Because that's not true. I think the younger generation are fabulous, right? But there are some differences from one generation to the next. I think that's probably a fair thing to say. Not that one's better or worse. But what I've observed is that perhaps my generation, because we're always taught, you know, you've got to do your time and the expectation was drilled into us, you know, there's a progression, you know, you've got to climb the ladder, right? Whereas the younger generation seem to want to skip the ladder and go to the top. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you miss a lot of experience when you're trying to do that. And mm. so I would say that um, coming back to the mistakes, it's about trying to put yourself into someone else's shoes for a moment and understand, seeking to understand someone else's perspective mm. rather than listening to your mates on DPR, assuming that your practice owner has got you know, some sort of evil intention to rip you off for whatever it is just ask the question and have the conversation the second thing i would say and again this is this is an inconvenient truth okay and i mean this this is an inconvenient truth is it costs a lot of money to run a dental practice Hmm. right it it does um staff costs chair costs material costs they're all big expenses now I'm not saying that associate dentists need to take on the burden of knowing all of that sort of stuff, but it means that for the practice to operate, it has to produce a certain amount of revenue, mm. right? And I say that cautiously because I don't want the people listening, listening to us to think, oh, it's all about the money. It's not all about the money, but you can't ignore the money either. And so I think one of the frustrations I would say that practice owners experience is having people occupy a dental chair and frit away patients or not produce enough revenue to kind of cover costs and make it worthwhile. And it feels like they're subsidizing their associate dentist. That would be their perspective. So that's just the thing. It's it's not that they feels like it's that they may well be paying for the dentistry that's being done um I, I, it's interesting that that hasn't really come up over the 18 months of podcasting but i've said that and repeated those words or, or discussed this probably four times over the last two months um i, I just maybe the guests that we we're bringing on it, it it is an important point i think it's really great that you mentioned that and it's really great that people are hearing and thinking about that obviously you know every situation is a bit different and all the rest of it um but it is important people think about that and and you don't want to see the patient as a dollar sign i don't mean it that way i'm all for doing the best possible dentistry i'm all for doing everything that's appropriate and indicated and no more um but it's just important i think it's just i I guess the crux of it is trying to understand the perspective of the practice owner and if you want the practice owner to understand your perspective then there's got to be this mutual understanding it's not all one-way traffic in either direction yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and um, I would make a point that I would like you can welcome to elaborate on that as you are a new graduate, when you literally just graduate, you don't need to worry too much about this. I think most practice owners expect there to be a ramp <laughs> towards a um, break even um, or, you know, and um, it might take a little longer or shorter. That's normal, but there is a 
stage you need to get to. Does it? Does that make sense? Does yeah, that sound right? perfectly? It makes absolute perfect sense. And we talk about numbers a lot with the clients that I work with, and so we're really clear about what that break-even point is. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't like to reduce things to numbers to the extent that you know perhaps you know, it might seem, but you know for the whole it's a, it's it's a mathematical equation that drives the practice yeah there's no no avoiding it as simple as that yeah yeah um what what's the toughest thing that's happened in your career oh okay um i think probably the most humiliating thing that's happened in my career and perhaps by definition it was the toughest as i've lost one job in my entire life only one. Plenty of times as a uni student, I deserved it. Um, <laughs> That's different. <laughs> and and, did, and didn't didn't get the flick. But uh, I remember working at a practice um, as an associate. I'd sold my first business, and I'd moved to Brisbane working as an associate. And um, you know that particular practice gets featured in in my book. I'm not going to mention the name um, of the practice, but in that particular practice, things weren't well run. Um, there was you know, 14,000 patients that hadn't been recalled over a seven-year period. There was $750,000 worth of treatment that had been diagnosed and not booked in. And so I started to get frustrated by this because I'd take a patient out to the reception and the receptionist, and I'd brief the patient about what needed to be done. Yeah. And the receptionist would say, why don't you just go away, David, and have a think about that? And if you if you want to do that, then just call me at your convenience. And and I've spent a lot of time impressing upon the patient the value of this treatment, the importance of it. So they left confused and bewildered, and obviously didn't book in. So what ended up happening is that um, I ended up bypassing the receptionist and making the appointments in the surgery, and my appointment books grew. Uh, those of the principals did not. And I thought rather gleefully that this is going to be great. They're going to sack the receptionist. That receptionist had decades worth of time in the practice because she'd been there over several owners. And so there was this massive long service entitlement. And I thought, beauty, they're going to deal with that. And they did deal with it and they dealt with it by sacking me. And um, and look, really candidly, I think there was, you know, I probably wasn't the best culture fit for that practice either. So I think probably a bit of a square peg in a round hole. But that was really, that really hurt. Um, mm. And I knew those two guys personally. Mm. And I have to say that um, that that was, it took me a long time to get over that because my, my ego was hurt. But interestingly, you know, coming back to that, out of every adversity is a seed for an equal and opportunity you know, equal greater opportunity out of that came savvy dentist yeah so now i'm immensely grateful so that sense of um being frustrated can i say pissed off pissed off yeah you can yeah, yeah. you certainly can <laughs> yeah um and hurt and frustrated has now turned to gratitude because in all honesty i think that was the push i needed i was yeah. i was seeking safety yep and i needed the push and so now I, I express my gratitude to both of them for for giving me that push to to then go. Okay, now I've got to get on with it. <laughs> Going to make two points. One, that's the most expensive receptionist ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> holy moly! Of course, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess the second is that that 
that's exactly why I asked the question. I think everyone who's had a tough situation, whatever they, you know, whatever the one that springs to mind, there's always a really strong learning point from it. And um, yeah, that's that's really good to hear. Um, tell us a bit about Savvy Dentist. It would be rude not to ask you about what you actually do now. Look, Savvy Dentist is essentially our, our vision for Savvy Dentist is to build the leading entrepreneurial community for dentists on the planet. That's really what we want to do. And we want to be able to do that uh, so that dentists can create multi-generational wealth for themselves, their family, and have an impact beyond themselves and you know, the community of which they're part. And we do that by, you know, providing our clients with access to, you know, the brightest minds in business, you know, the, the up-to-date tools and the savviest information that we can gather from going around the world and literally bringing that back to our community. So that's really our vision for it. Uh, and in, in short, what it is, it's a business coaching uh, platform uh, where we have a bespoke solution for each individual practice owner. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's, um, it, it's quite custom. And so that, that's it in a nutshell, but it's more than a business program. It's, it's a community, and that's, for me, the thing that gets me out of bed every single day is the community, and uh, I'm very grateful uh, to the people who entrust us with that responsibility and I'm very lucky to work with some of you know dentistry's brightest minds as well, and and they're all very uh, competent business owners. You won't see them on social media so much, but they're just going about their day to day stuff, building a great great empire. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And the the saying, you are the sum of the five people you surround yourself with. If you're in a community of 500 or 5,000 of those, well, you're going to do a bit better. (laughs) It's pretty simple stuff. Obviously, um, it is for practice owners, um, but you do do some other peripheral work. Is there anything that you could say that a student or a graduate should be interested in or look at or obviously we mentioned the book because that is really good yeah and obviously, obviously the, the podcast, podcast as well, well but yeah. the book and the podcast would be the main things but from time to time we run an event called the productive dentist and i'd mm-hmm. say that would be a useful uh thing for them to come along to when we can all get together of course or if we run it <laughs> digitally um we'll, we'll do that probably in 2021 um, but we run that course designed to help younger dentists become productive in their role and there's three key things that we focus on this one learning how to build a book you know how to build an appointment book how to build a following how to present treatment so it's accepted and then of course how to do the work to a high standard uh, efficiently and Mm. so we figure if we can deliver on those three pillars then they're going to be productive in their role Mm. so keep an eye on cpd junkie to find that (laughs) cpd junkie.com.au you heard it here first folks (laughs) um and you, you might even see me there. Um, let me know when that comes out. Well, I'll, I'll obviously see it on CPD Junkie. Um, that's just awesome stuff. We have packed this with so much useful stuff and I could talk to you. I could literally talk to you about this for hours and sometimes we kind of do when we have our meetings. But um, I want to ask you just – well, I want to I say again, thank you for everything you've done for dentistry. It's If people are listening and this is their first exposure to um, Jesse and his content and his thoughts and his visions um, – you really dive into the podcast, look back through 250 plus episodes. There is so much in there for everyone, no matter what you're interested in. So, you know, thank you for doing that. Thank you for making that content free as well. Um, it, it's changed my career and my life, actually. Well, well, thank you so much for saying that, mate. And I, I can genuinely say that dentistry has given me a whole lot more than I've given it. 
Um, as I said to you, my wife and my kids are direct byproduct of the profession. So I feel <laughs> very, yeah, very, pretty high level. Yeah. yeah, pretty high level. I know that just sounded really weird. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was going, that, that sounds a little bit weird. But anyway, dentistry has been very kind to me. And, um, you, you know, I, I'm grateful for the support that the profession has provided me and, and the uptake of the podcast and the book and so on. So, and again, mate, I, I'd just like to salute you as well because I think this particular program fills a really important space in the market. And, you know, as I said at the outset, I wish this had been around when I was a young dentist. It would have made life so much easier. So, again, I just want to reciprocate in kind and say, you know, really good job, mate. Well done. I appreciate that and I really do hope it is making a difference. I want to ask you one last question. There's always the last one. Um, I want you to think about all the people who are about to graduate in, you know, a couple of months' time. Think about them all. You can actually speak and teach them all one thing. There's one piece of information you think they should all know and that would really change their career or help them. What would that piece of information be? Uh, this is, I hope, hope this is not going to be a, too long an explanation. <laughs> We've got all day. <laughs> all right. So there's a winemaker called Max uh, Schubert and hmm. – uh, Max is the winemaker responsible for Penfolds Grange. And the thing I would like your listeners to think about is you're creating a career, not a job. And much like building a fine wine, you've got to have the right environment. You've got to have the right soil. You've got to have the right fertilizer for the vines. You've got to have the right water, temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And when you, the grapes are growing, you've got to pick them gently and harvest them in the right way and then process them the right way. And I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we're, we're making grange. We're not making $2 plonk from <laughs> the local bottler. And I'd like the young dentist to think of their career as making grange, something that's long-term, it's methodical, it's about being you know, uh, persistent and consistent, staying the course. And it's, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And be patient with yourself. There will be some ups, there will be some downs. But remember, you're making Grange and that's your career. That is the most fantastic way to finish this podcast. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jessica. All right, true to form, a monster episode but a fascinating journey and story and I hope you were engaged right till the end as I was. If you're interested in what Dr. Jesse Green is doing, I recommend you check out his podcast, Savvy Dentist, um, and of course, his content, Savvy Dentist Academy. You can find the links in the show notes. Jesse is genuinely someone who is out there fighting for dentists to do great work and to have great businesses and to live a, a life that they love. And I think that is an inspiring mission and I wish him all the best. Of course, Jesse Green's a partner in CPD Junkie and that's something we're doing with Omi Dizami to really try and make it easy to find dentistry, CPD, to find what you want. You can get alert emails on the specific topics that you want to learn about this year or in 2021. If you're interested in that, of course, you can go to cpdjunkie.com.au and find out more. For now, we've got Ripe Global, a segment with Dr. Lincoln Harris and he's talking about denture adjustments. It's something that can really be a pain in the backside. And I think the way he talks about this and the way he shares the vision around denture adjustments really puts it in perspective. Um, thank you, Ripe Global, for your support through 2020 and into 2021. I really think what they're doing over at Ripe Global is amazing, really making great dental education available at a really affordable price. It's a worldwide mission and it's inspiring stuff. Let's hear from Dr. Lincoln Harris. 
Have you ever had a denture patient that's come back for 97 adjustments and is still not happy? Denture patients can be one of the most rewarding patients, but they can also be the most difficult. So most of the success of a denture patient comes in the communication before you start and the diagnosis before you start. Don't try and do things that are impossible. Uh, I have a patient actually just today who come in and said, I can't chew on my denture. And I said, well, if you look at our original consultation, I said, you'd never be able to chew on your denture until you had back lower teeth. And so until you get them, you won't be able to chew. So that was a communication that we made right at the start, setting expectations. First thing with your denture patient is you need to work out how long it takes to make a denture and put it in their mouth. And then you need to double that because that's how long it really takes to make a denture. On average, I plan on as many weeks adjusting the denture after it goes in as it took me to make the denture in the first place. So if it takes me six weeks to make a denture, I expect to do six weeks of adjustments after the denture is made. And this is normal. So don't think that a patient who needs six weeks of adjustments after you put a denture in is wrong or strange or useless or annoying. That's actually normal. I mean, if they're still coming back after a year and 57 adjustments, then you need to say, I can't do anything for you, but most patients need adjustments and they need several weeks of adjustments. So first, accept that's normal. If you don't charge enough to cover all of those adjustments, either tell the patient how much it costs per adjustment before you start, or increase your fee, one or the other. But if your fee is only enough to get the denture in their mouth and doesn't cover any adjustments, then you are going to be sad and so is the patient. Secondly, look at the patient to see whether it's actually possible to fix their troubles. If they come in and go, I want suction on my denture, and you look at their upper jaw and there's just no bone, there's no gingiva, all the gingiva is floppy, uh, the bone has significantly resorbed, they've got lower front teeth, but no lower back teeth, then just have an honest conversation with the patient before you start. It's better to do no dentistry than to do weeks of dentistry and then give the money back afterwards. That's just like a short-term loan that the patient gave you. If you can't actually do the treatment, then don't do it. It's okay to say no. If a patient needs implants to have any chance of success, then tell them that. And if they say, well, just try the denture, you go, okay, I will make the denture and I will do this number of adjustments. But if it's not comfortable at that point, it's a problem with your jaw and you will not get your money back. Are you okay to proceed? And if they are, then get them to sign. If they're not, then don't go ahead. Never, ever be more eager to do the dentistry than the patient is. Lastly, watch out for the patient who has a bag full of dentures. Anyone who comes in with a bag full of dentures is going to be a really difficult patient. Uh, you cannot ever make these patients happy, so just say no. So part of the key with denture patients is one, spend a lot of time with them after the dentures are inserted. Two, charge enough that you can spend that time. Three, don't take on patients who have a bag of dentures. And four, don't do dentures that are impossible, like patients with no jaws who want suction or who want to eat an apple. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. 
So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.